0: What is up? What is up? All right, so I believe we have a busy show today because we had CPAC recently. I have a bunch of videos from CPAC. The big man himself gave a speech. We'll be discussing that. Um, I also have the straw poll coming out of there, a bunch of news on the minimum wage, a bunch of news on the COVID relief package, a bunch of news on foreign policy, including Syria and Saudi Arabia. Joe Biden weighs in on the conversation about unions. Um Later on in the show today, we have Ben Shapiro and Rave Dubin. So we got a little bit of everything. We're all over the place. Um, amazing stuff, man. Amazing stuff. All right, so without further ado, let's get started. I'm going to hold off just a little bit on the CPAC stuff because I want to lead with um, the stimulus. All right, so here we go. The House of Representatives has officially passed the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Let me give you some information on that. Democrats have gotten over an important hurdle in COVID-19 relief. The House of Representatives just passed its version of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, sending it off to the Senate. The bill passed around 2 a.m. Saturday in a 219 to 212 vote with every Republican voting no every Republican. Democratic representatives Jared Golden of Maine and Kurt Schrader of Oregon also oppose the bill. The bill includes some big-ticket items that would deliver important relief to businesses, workers, and and the broader economy. It includes $1,400 stimulus checks for those making up to $75,000 a year, $400 expanded weekly unemployment insurance benefits through August 29th, and billions of dollars for designates such as schools, state and local governments and restaurants, it also increases Affordable Care Act subsidies for low- and middle-income Americans and expands both the Child Tax Credit and Earned Income Tax Credit. The bill also includes a $15 federal minimum wage, though so the provision is dead in the Senate. The Senate parliamentarian ruled on Thursday evening that the minimum wage hike cannot be passed under the rules of budget reconciliation. Now, we're going to get back to that Um If Democrats really wanted to, they could just fire the parliamentarian. Republicans in the past have had parliamentarians who said, hey, you can't do that through reconciliation, and then they just fire the parliamentarian and bring somebody in who says, actually, you can do that, and then they do it. They did that with the Bush tax cuts. They did that with um, welfare reform, 1996 welfare reform. So if you really want something, you could just fire the parliamentarian or, or I think you could maybe don't even have to fire, fire her in this instance. You could just override her. Apparently, Kamala Harris has the ability to just override her. Um, there's no indication that they're actually going to do that, which is pathetic, and it shows they don't really want a $15 minimum wage. But, but it is worth noting here that the House version of the package has the $15 minimum wage in it, and it passed. And only two Democrats voted against it, every Democrat but two, Before this entire package. And again, I think the most important part of this story is there wasn't a single Republican vote for this package. Not a single one. Not a single one. Listen to this fact. This bill, this exact bill, polls at 76% approval in the country. 76%. When you ask just Republican voters, it's 60%. 60% of Republican voters support this exact bill and zero Republicans voted for it. Listen, man, this is one of those things where if the roles were reversed and the Democrats just put their middle finger up to 60% of their own voters, Republicans would pounce on that. They would pounce on that in a vicious way. But now it's, Republicans who are putting their middle finger up to 60% of their voters, and my guess is you don't really see this weaponized in an effective political way, even though it needs to be. You know, I mean, honestly, what this reminds me of is the Obamacare vote, where Democrats caved to the Republican position of an individual mandate system. It gives more people health insurance, but it basically mandates that you have to buy it on the private market. This was a Heritage Foundation plan. It's a right-wing plan. And zero Republicans voted for it. It's astonishing. It's astounding. I mean, I would get it if, you know, a lot of Republicans were against Medicare for All or something, even though about 50% of Republican voters are for Medicare for All. But this was literally their idea that they came up with, and they got zero Republican votes. What this shows you is the answer will always be hell no from these people. Every now and then you'll chip away on certain issues. You might have some libertarian-leaning Republicans or populist-leaning Republicans that you can help, you know, you can get along with on some foreign policy stuff or civil liberty stuff or maybe some trade stuff. But on most things, they're just going to say no for the sake of saying no. They're back in full obstruction mode. So the way you deal with that is not to always reach out to them and not to always say, let's hold hands and sing kumbaya. The way you approach this is, I'm going to make you break. I'm going to extract a political price from you every time you go against the will of the people and every time you go against my agenda. And so the real strategy in dealing with this stuff is to fight, is to fight and make them feel the hurt, make them feel like they have no option but to bend to your will. And you're beginning to see the Overton window shift in some ways. That's why you had Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney come out and say, oh, we're for an increased minimum wage, but we're going to link some immigration stuff to it and make it only $10 an hour. But that shows the Overton window is shifting. Everybody's feeling the pressure because the polls are so freaking high in favor of an increased minimum wage. So even they're bending a little bit. Um, So you should take them head on. And even though this bill from the Democrats is pathetic, you need to extract a political price. Now, the other lesson from this is, Democrats did nothing but hurt themselves by lowering the $2,000 checks to $1,400 checks. They did nothing but hurt themselves because the idea was, oh, that'll make it a total of $2,000 and maybe we'll get some Republican votes. Well, congratulations, you got zero Republican votes, and you pissed off more of your base. Where $2,000 checks was polling way higher, and that's exactly what you promised, now you lowered it. Nominally, you get some GOP votes, and you didn't get any GOP votes, so why would you even lower it? Why would you play that game? And unfortunately, I think the reality is because a lot of the Democrats didn't even want the $2,000 checks. You know, it's not like it was some strategy thing on their part, and that's the whole reason. No, I think a lot of them didn't want to give $2,000 checks. And so they were just lying when they said they were going to do $2,000 checks. So they were, in a number of ways, they were wrong. Um, They're wrong to lower it, and also they were wrong to wait this long, man. This is a. Remember, they said within the first week, basically, is when they were going to do this, and they didn't do it. So, but listen, it did pass now. It's going to go to the Senate. We'll see what happens with the minimum wage, but you should be super heated over the minimum wage if, if the result is what it looks like it's going to be, that they'll take it out. But, um, I mean, I think it's mid-March that the unemployment benefits run out, and so they need to pass this thing by mid-March. And... Again, it's just a shame that it wasn't $2,000 checks. It's a shame that the minimum wage is on the chopping block. But it does say a lot, doesn't it, that even this watered-down version, zero Republican votes, zero Republican votes. They're gonna, they flip on a dime, man. They will flip on a dime and go from, remember under Trump, some of the Republicans were like, yeah, 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 cut the checks, of course, absolutely. And then now, what are they saying? All of them. Go right to, what about the deficit and the debt? We care so much we can't add to the deficit and the debt. What are you, crazy? That's ridiculous. Now, meanwhile, take note. A lot of these people voted for the Trump tax cuts, which cut taxes. 83% of the benefits went to the rich under the Trump tax cut bill. And it added nearly $2 trillion to the deficit. $2 trillion. Nobody said anything about, oh my God, the debt and the deficit, oh, how good it? No, they just voted for it, because they prioritize giving money away to the rich more than they prioritize caring about the debt and the deficit. So here we have a situation where all of a sudden they pretend to prioritize the debt and the deficit above everything else, and it's really bullshit. It's just they don't want to go along with anything that would help people under a Democratic administration. That's the reality. So keep that in mind. 60% of Republican voters supported this exact bill, 60%, and zero Republican politicians voted for it. Zero. They put their middle finger up to more than half of their own party. It's really something crazy.
1: Okay, next. Next, next, next. Here we
0: go. So the Senate parliamentarian, um, somebody who nobody ever thought about or knew who they were until like last week, um, they decided, it's a she in this case, she decided um No, $15 minimum wage can't uh, be done through reconciliation. Why? Because I say so. I know Republicans do anything they want through reconciliation, but I'm going to say the Democrats can't do something that has like a 60 to 80% approval rating through reconciliation, can't do it. Um, So, of course, the reaction from the usual suspects is,
2: Oh, the process, we care so much about the process, we can't do
0: it, because instead of Parliamentary, this unelected bureaucrat, we're going to let override the overwhelming majority of the American people. And so Biden releases him, I'm so saddened by the decision from the parliamentarian. it's terrible. It's so sad. Now, what they don't tell you is this. That's an advisory opinion. They could override it if they want to override it. That's it. It's an advisory opinion. They can say, oh, interesting take. I disagree. And they can move forward with it. They're not doing that. The fact that they're not doing that says what? They don't really want to do the $15 minimum wage. I'm sorry, that's the truth. They don't really want to do it. So now the $15 minimum wage is on the chopping block. By the way, you should fight like hell every step of the way. Every Democrat who really believes in this should make those who oppose pay a political price, and you should be vicious. You should be no-holds-barred. You should be clear about who the enemy is in this situation, and right now it is. Biden and Kamala Harris, without a doubt. Throw in Joe Manchin, throw in a few others. But you should go to town. You should go to town and treat them like they're the Republicans because they are. They are on this. They are. Okay, so um, with this on the chopping block, we get this news. Senate Democrats are racing to finalize a new tax provision, this is from CBS that would penalize large companies that pay low wages. The move comes after Senate Parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough ruled Thursday night that a $50 minimum wage hike cannot be included in the Senate COVID relief package which is currently being pushed through the chamber through a process known as budget reconciliation. The plan being drafted by aides to Senate Finance Committee chair Ron Wyden of Oregon in close consultation with Senate Budget Chair Bernie Sanders of Vermont would impose a 5% payroll tax penalty on very large companies that do not pay workers a certain amount. That amount is still unclear. Wyden favors a $15 an hour, Wyden favors $15 an hour, but is currently seeking feedback from fellow Democrats on that figure, and on exactly which companies would face the penalties. Everyone in the caucus is envisioning very large companies. Think Walmart, Amazon, a Senate Democratic aide told CBS News. So the new idea is this. This gives you you some of the details here. But the new idea is what if we found a way to penalize big companies that didn't pay $15 an hour as a minimum wage? And they have ways that they can punish that, whether it's through withholding subsidies or getting rid of tax breaks or whatever it might be. Um, and they even go on to say that for the smaller companies, they would incentivize smaller companies to pay $15 an hour um, by using a, a carrot and stick approach, and the, uh, the smaller companies would get the carrot. And so it would be, you know, we'll give you some sort of net subsidy or net, net tax break if you pay $15 an hour. And again, with the bigger companies, I think it would be more punitive. It would be more the stick approach than the carrot approach. So either way, it's like this backdoor roundabout way to try to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, So this is what they're calling the plan B. And it was just floated. And so they're like, hey, if they're going to not allow us to raise the minimum wage to a living wage up front, we're going to find another way to do it. And that's the end of the conversation. Well, well, they already backed off of this. They already backed off of this. They already backed off of this. This news was floated a couple days ago. Two days after it was floated, yeah, we're going to put that on the back burner. We're not going to do that. I would love to be a fly on the wall for the conversations that are going on between Democratic senators and the Biden administration. I would love to know what's being said and how the White House is getting people who actually do believe in good ideas to just back off of them. My guess is there's a lot of gaslighting, a lot of lying, a lot of we'll promise to do it through this way or that way or this way or that way. When the fact of the matter is, man— The left and the people who really believe in a living wage, you need to stop being pushovers and being cucks. Now, the good news is this. Right before I came on air, news just broke. Ro Khanna drafted a letter, and signing on to that letter was AOC, Ilhan Omar, Mark Pocan, um, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal. There was a list of, I think it's over 20 House um, Democrats who are saying directly to the Biden administration, you need to overrule the parliamentarian and put the $15 minimum wage, the original $15 minimum wage, into the $1.9 trillion package. We are imploring you to do that and telling you you have the ability to do that. You just need to choose to do it. We're not going to let some unelected, faceless bureaucrat override the whatever it was. 81 million Americans who just voted for you with the promise of a $15 minimum wage. If you guys remember, when Bernie cucked himself and dropped out and endorsed Biden, the one policy, the one policy that Biden caved on Bernie for is they, they got together and they did this interview, and Biden was like, yes, Bernie, of course I'm in favor of a $15 minimum wage. I'm a strong supporter of that. You're going to back off on the one promise you made to the left? And when I tell you the time I told you I was skeptical, I told you I don't know if he actually believes in it, And what he's proving now is if they don't put it in, he doesn't believe in it. That's what I'm trying to get across to you guys, is that this isn't a matter of opinion. We know for a fact, because the Republicans have done it before, if you don't agree with the Senate parliamentarian, you could overrule them, you could fire them. They did that when it came to uh, the Bush tax cuts and welfare reform. They were just like, we're going to put it in through reconciliation, and you can go fuck yourself if you disagree. We can and should do that with a $15 minimum wage. If they don't do it, it's because they're choosing not to do it. So anyway... Tremendous credit to Ro Khanna and every single Democrat in the House who's telling Biden, no, override them, overrule them. You have the ability to do that. But, listen, i got to be honest with you guys, I need to see a lot more fight than this. And I need to see people like Bernie Sanders and, you know, whoever the hell else fancies themselves a strong supporter of a $15 minimum wage. I don't know, Sherrod Brown, Ron Wyden, Elizabeth Warren, senators too. I need you guys to directly call them out. I want to hear you say, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are helping the Republican politicians by killing this and helping big corporations by killing this. And you need to ask yourself, why are they doing it? Is it because they take money from big corporations? Because they do take money from big corporations. So maybe that's why they're representing the big corporations. I'm just telling you what's obvious. I need to see the fight. I need to see the battle lines drawn. And if you don't draw the battle lines, I don't want to hear shit about how you virtue signal and believe in all these good ideas when you're not willing to fight for them. You have to be willing to fight for them. It was never going to be easy. We know it's never going to be easy. The most pathetic thing ever is when you come across your first hurdle, Senate parliamentarian, you're like, well, what are we going to do? Process is process. If you really believe in it, you'll find a way. So, I mean, it's just, it's pathetic. They've already backed off plan B. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from that. Am I supposed to take away from that? that there's assurances that it'll be brought up later in a way that's more likely to pass. Because I'll tell you, the clearest path to get this minimum wage raised, again, it's not a debate. The clearest path to do it is to just override the Senate parliamentarian because they're telling us, hey, we have the votes. Really? You have the votes? Well, if you have the votes and the only thing standing in the way is a bureaucrat who you can override, then override the bureaucrat. Where's the debate? That's the fastest way to get to an increase in the minimum wage. Anything else is sort of bullshit, and you're giving us the runaround, whether it's the plan B thing or it's, you know, some promise at a future date we'll put it in another bill that has reconciliation. Doubt they'll do that because once they agree now that it can't be rates through reconciliation, they're not going to go back on that later. So what are you going to do? Are you promising, hey, we'll put it up for a vote on its own to try to get 60 votes, get it through regular order? That's not going to happen because even the Republicans who are nominally in favor of raising the minimum wage, they say like $10 an hour, you know? So the real fight is, do it the reconciliation, do it right now, and you make cinema and you make Manchin bend the knee. You exert political pressure on them and let them know if they vote against you, you're going to end their careers. That's what's going to happen. And then you can make them fall in line. There was another poll that just came out of West Virginia. It's like 63% of West Virginians or something like that want a $15 minimum wage. And Manchin is well known for being one of these folks. Where's that political wind blowing? I'm going that way now. So exert the pressure. Biden has a 62% approval rating. Use your political capital and use it on this fight. If he doesn't do it, he doesn't want to do it. That's the point I'm trying to make for you guys. So plan B thing, you know, popped the head up and then went away. I don't know what they're planning in the future. The clearest path is, don't listen to the parliamentarian, put it in. And if you're not going to do that, then you can't be upset if you do poor in the midterms and if you do poor in 2024. Because this was one of your core promises. And if you go back on it, It means you never really wanted to do it, because you can do it. It just requires wanting to do it, having some guts, and taking on the fight. Okay, next. Now we're going to talk about CPAC. CPAC time, CPAC time. So CPAC happened um, the past few days, and it was interesting, to say the least. It really isn't CPAC anymore, it's TPAC. It's not the Conservative Political Action Conference, it's the Trump Political Action Conference. So the big man himself came and gave a speech, Um, Let me show you one of the things that made headlines.
3: I want you to know that I am going to continue to fight right by your side. We will do what we've done right from the beginning, which is to win. We're not starting new parties. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news. No. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Let's start a new party and let's divide our vote so that you can never win. No, we're not interested in that. No, We have tremendous. uh, Mr. McLaughlin just gave me numbers that nobody's ever heard of before. More popular than anybody. That's all of us. That's all of
0: us. So that's a shame. That's a shame. He knows it. He figured it out. He knows that if he starts a new party, he's dooming the Republicans forever to lose in perpetuity. Um, And so he also knows that he owns the Republican Party. He also knows that the polls are clear. He is by far and away the dominant figure, and nobody's even close to him. So he figured it out. That's a shame. Um, I was sort of hoping for him to start that new party and just throw U.S. politics into total chaos and mayhem and make it so that Democrats are guaranteed to win, and then the real battle would only be within the Democratic Party for the left flank and the corporate flank. And I think we have a much better chance in that landscape for the left to take over and win, because then the Republicans really are a non-issue. Because you have, if you have a new party from Trump and he's perpetually taking 10 to 15 from, percent from the GOP and their base voters— they're doomed. They would have been doomed. So it's upsetting that, uh, you know, he realizes that he owns the Republican Party and he wouldn't start a new party. Now, he does go on to say the following, quote, I may even decide to beat them for a third time, meaning the Democrats. So the whole speech, he, if you think there's any acknowledgement or recognition that he actually lost the election, boy, are you mistaken. Because the whole speech was clear. He was trying to say, no, I I won. And it was bullshit that Biden is in the Oval Office and I'm not going to let it go. And I'm still going to maintain that I won, even though I lost and I lost every court case. And he was inaugurated and he's the president now. No, I think I I won. So he's not going to let it go, man. He's not going to let it go. And that's why he said, I may even decide to beat them for a third time. He's teasing a 2024 run without even acknowledging that he lost this run. Um, you know, the, the Republicans are in a little bit of a catch-22 at the moment, and I think some of the smarter ones among them know it, that Trump still does own the party. If he runs in 2024, he's very likely to be the nominee. Um, and, but the problem is, he appears, now the po- conventional wisdom is in the other direction. The conventional wisdom was Teflon Don, he can't lose after 2016. He overperformed even though he lost in 2020. But now the conventional wisdom is you can't win with him. He's damaged goods. He's done. So in a way, I think the Democrats might be rooting for a Trump 2024 primary victory. But I would say be careful what you wish for because neither one of the conventional wisdom viewpoints were true either in 2016 or in 2020, you know, the idea he was totally unbeatable, factually wrong, but also the idea that now he can never win again is factually wrong. So you just got to go wherever the evidence takes you. And and right now the evidence is um, he's the favorite for 2024, and then you have to hope the Democrats do enough to maintain their support and winning numbers around the country. And there is reason to doubt that at the moment. Backing off of the $15 minimum wage is, is a great example. Backing off the $2,000 checks and making it $1,400, which is just beyond weasley and proves that they lied when they were saying $2,000 checks. And the crazy thing is Trump actually acknowledges some of those mistakes that the Democrats made, and he knows that he can exploit them politically moving forward. But it's still up in the air as to how he would do in a 2024 race because he's sending mixed signals. So sometimes he has the economic stuff, okay, that that'll help him. But then other times, like in, in the rest of the CPAC speech, and we'll get to some of this stuff later, he goes all in on the culture war bullshit, which is not going to win you an election. I'm sorry, it's not. Going all in on culture war grievances is not going to win you an election. It's going to win you, you know, the ardent support of the Newsmax base and the One American News Network base and the Fox News base, but you cannot create, you know, a governing majority with that kind of rhetoric. So it's almost like He's trying to feel out the room and determine what's the best message for a 2024 run. He's not exactly honed in on it yet, but he's feeling it out. And of course, he's still in the best place of uh, any of the politicians in the Republican Party to do that, to win and to run. So it's funny because a lot of them are bending the knee now, too. Like Cruz in his speech bent the knee. It was basically like, we still support Donald J. Trump. Um, they, so they're still going they're still waiting in line, basically, and viewing him as the kingmaker, and they don't want to take him on directly because they see the numbers, and they see how he's still the dominant figure in the party. It really is wild to see, because usually after a politician loses, they have to go into the woods for a while, and their numbers plummet, and then they come back up. Trump has just always stayed steady with his approval rating. You know, he, he did, he did drop toward, for the Capitol Hill insurrection, he did drop to Bush numbers, um, but then he immediately bounced back up, and... He's right in his normal ballpark range of 35% to 40%. And the problem is that 35% or 40% are so ride or die that um, you don't have a situation where any other Republican politician overtook him as, like, the leader of the party in their eyes, you know? So, I mean, I like what what Vosh said on Twitter. He was like, "If, if Trump wants to beat them again in 2024 in the same way that he beat them in 2020, I'm all for it because he didn't really beat them. He says he beats them, but he didn't really beat them. But, you know, I I don't know. I would be a little bit scared of a Kamala Harris versus Donald Trump 2024 matchup. I would be. Because I think that there's a lot of weaknesses there as a candidate for Kamala Harris, as proven by the fact that she couldn't even get through the Democratic primary, didn't even place well in the Democratic primary, and I think she dropped out before Iowa. So... Not the best political instincts on that one, and she's now viewed as the front-runner on the Democratic side, and Trump definitely has, is definitely a more dynamic politician than she is, so who knows what the hell could happen. You just need the Democrats to deliver in a real, solid way in these four years to doom Trump, but I don't know if they have that in them, and so far they've proven not so much. So teasing the 2024 run already, and he knows he owns the GOP, That's certainly not the best of news. Okay. All right, next Trump CPAC story. Trump flexed his muscle in his CPAC speech and he effectively declared war on the Republicans who don't support him.
3: The Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey. And in the House, Tom Rice, South Carolina, Adam Kinzinger, Dan Newhouse, Anthony Gonzalez, that's another beauty, Fred Upton, Jamie Herrera Butler, Peter Meyer, John Catco, David Valadeo, and of course the warmonger, a person that loves seeing our troops fighting, Liz Cheney, how about that? The good news is in her state, she's been censured and in her state, her poll numbers have dropped faster than any human being I've ever seen. So hopefully they'll get rid of her with the next election. Get rid of them all. Democrats are vicious. Remember this, it's true. Democrats are vicious, she said evil. Well, there is evil there. But they're vicious, they're smart, and they do one thing. Gotta hand it to them. They always stick together. You don't have Mitt Romney's in the group. They always stick together. Fortunately, for the Republican Party, the Democrats have horrible policies like open borders, sanctuary cities, defunding the police, and the ridiculous, totally ridiculous Green New Deal. So they stick together. They're smart. They're vicious. They got everything going. But their policies are no good. So hence we have, congratulations, the Republican Party.
0: That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> the Republican Party, big-time policy walks. care deeply about that sort of stuff. <sighs> Even his, um, his description of the Democratic Party there flips reality on its head. He says they're vicious, smart, and they always stick together. They're not at all vicious. They're pathetically weak. Um, They're really not smart either, I would say And they definitely don't stick together There's a giant democratic civil war going on Between the left and the corporatists Did you not, you know Did you not see the 2016 and 2020 primaries And the deep divisions between the Bernie Sanders base And the corporatists and the people who support more You know, right-leaning Democrats Did you not I mean, it's just he's really flipping reality on its head here because, you know, at least until recently, the Republicans have sort of stuck together as one big block. um, And it's the Democrats who are always at each other's throats. The good news is, with Trump declaring war here on other Republicans, that there is going to be a Republican civil war as well. The only downside is I think Trump is going to overwhelmingly win that civil war. So, I mean, what he does is he lists his enemies. Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Richard Burr, I didn't get all of them, but I jotted down a bunch of them, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey, Adam Kinzinger, Dan Newhouse, and then he says the warmonger LeChaini. Hilarious that Trump's calling anybody a warmonger because his record is that of a warmonger. He really just continued establishment policies on most issues involving foreign policy, and he's acting like, you know, he was some sort of dove. Are you kidding me? It's not true at all. You kept Iraq going. You kept Afghanistan going. you massively increased the drone war, you escalated with Iran and sanctioning medicine and food and whatnot from going in there. You assassinated General Soleimani, which nearly sparked another giant war. So, the idea that, oh, Liz changed a warmonger. Yeah, I, I'll grant you that she's perhaps more of a warmonger than Trump, but Trump is clearly a warmonger, so it's hilarious that he's calling her out on those terms. Um, listen, it's interesting that the the anti-Trump establishment Republicans, their differences really come down to this. They hate his lack of decorum. They hate his lack of civility. They hated his mean tweets. They hate that Trump has made it so Republicans lost the suburbs. They hate that. They hate that. They hate that. Um, And the only substantive difference is that they really were against that attempted insurrection because they felt like now we're the target of the Trump mob's ire. And they're not comfortable with that at all. Liz Cheney does not like that at all. When the peasants are knocking down her door, she's terrified. But that's the extent of their differences. Again, like I said, when it comes to deregulation, same page. When it comes to tax cuts for the wealthy, same page. When it comes to uh, endless wars, same page. The list goes on and on. Policy-wise, they love the guy. And so it's it's really more of a cultural difference than anything else. And I think that says a lot. I think that says a lot. Culturally speaking, Trump throws more red meat to the base. And he's willing to fight that culture war and be unapologetic on the side of the far right. Whereas a lot of the other Republicans think that's too divisive and is going to doom them to perpetual losses. And they might be right about that. They might be right. But this is Trump declaring war on Republicans who dissented from him. He's the leader. He's the boss. He's the daddy. And you're going to shut up and fall in line. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing. And it just so happens in the process, he says ridiculous things about the Democrats. Like, they're vicious, smart, and they always stick together. And there's not, by the way, not a single elected Democrat in D.C. supports open borders. Not a single one. But they they just make it up. Oh, yeah, they're running on open borders. No, they're not. Nobody's running on open borders. Yeah, they're running on, like, defund the police or something. How many lawmakers in D.C. are actually for, quote-unquote, defunding the police? Is it one, Cori Bush? And, by the way, they have a caricatured version of what that means to defund the police. Like, what the actual people advocating for it are in favor of is, like, reduce police budgets, take that money, and put it into, like, mental health professionals who can answer some of these calls as opposed to somebody showing up with a gun when a gun's not needed. That's what defund the police means. But they, they put like the you know, the villainous spin on it, like, woo, this is scary and terrible and they act like the entire Democratic Party believes it when it's like tiny, tiny number that do. So they caricature and straw man, and then of course they mock the Green New Deal, which is hilarious because again the Green New Deal emphasis on the New Deal part of it, which would create hundreds of thousands or even millions of jobs and make us the dominant force in the world when it comes to the future of energy production. So That's a wonderful policy. That's a superb policy. We should go down that road, but he's stuck in his own little bubble and acting like, you know, it's crazy or whatever. So, and uh, by the way, ha ha, the idea that Republicans, we're the party of good policies, you know what I'm saying? You guys have only had one set of horrendous policies since like the early 1900s. It's always the same. It's always cut taxes for the wealthy and deregulate. That's all you got. And certainly there, there was a time when there were some Republicans who were more isolationist. But now even the ones who use the, the non-interventionist rhetoric on foreign policy still end up being for wars. So, you know, that's bullshit, too. It's pro-war, pro-deregulation, pro-tax cuts for the wealthy. That's all they believe in. And leaning into the culture war on, in stupid ways and, you know, um, virtue signaling about how much you believe in the Bible and believe in the flag, which is just the dumbest bullshit I've ever heard in my life. Um, But here you have it, Donald Trump declaring war on the Republicans who don't fall in line and don't bend the knee and kiss his ring.
1: Okay.
3: All right, next.
0: President Trump leaned into the culture war in his CPAC speech. He's throwing red meat to the base here. This is an interesting clip for a number of reasons. Here he is talking about trans athletes. Oh, boy.
3: Joe Biden and the Democrats are even pushing policies that would destroy women's sports. A lot of new records are being broken in women's sports. Hate to say that, ladies, but got a lot of new records. They're being shattered. You know, for years, the weightlifting, every ounce is like a big deal for many years. All of a sudden, somebody comes along and beats it by a hundred pounds. Boom, boom. Now, young girls and women are in sense that they are now being forced to compete against those who are biological males not good for women, not good for women's sports, which worked so long and so hard to get to where they are. The records that stood for years, even decades, are now being smashed with ease, smashed. If this is not changed, women's sports, as we know it, will die, they'll end, it'll end. What coach, if I'm a coach, you know, I wanna be a great coach. What coach, as an example, wants to recruit a young woman to compete if her record can easily be broken by somebody who was born a man. Not too many of those coaches around, right? They are around, they won't be around long because they're gonna have a big problem when their record is, we're 0-16 but we're getting better. No, I think it's crazy, I think it's just crazy what's happening. We must protect the integrity of women's sports, so important, have to.
0: Donald J. Trump has no real opinion on this issue. That strikes me as very clear. And if you don't believe me, watch the clip over a number of times, and you'll get that sense. I promise you you'll get that sense. Because he was clearly told that, like, hey, bring this up, because this is something that, like, people in the base care about, and that's a bigger issue now. So bring that up and talk about that and throw some red meat to the base. They, what do these idiots want me to say? Just tell me exactly what they want to hear, and I'll bring it up, and we'll see how it goes. We'll see if I get the reaction that's a positive reaction. I'll bring it up. And so he was told to bring it up, and he brings it up, and you can tell by how he talks about it. He's not – this isn't really in his wheelhouse. You know, like when he does the immigration stuff, that's more in his, in his wheelhouse. When he does the trade stuff, that's more in his wheelhouse. Here he's like – he's got his training wheels on, and he's trying to figure out exactly the lines and how to navigate the issue – and it's just obvious to me that he has no real opinion on this, and he was just told to bring it up to throw some red meat to the base. And, I mean, I think this is, a, this is an important moment to explain what goes on with the culture war in this country. The culture war is used to divert you from all the ways in which these people are fucking you. Whether it's issues involving the Bible or the flag or religion, or Colin Kaepernick, or whatever it is. They bring up these issues to try to signal, virtue signal like, I'm with you on the things you think and are annoyed by, but then they turn around and they declare economic war on you. It's a class war. So this is the same guy who did a tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the rich. This is the same guy who who deregulated Wall Street. This is the same guy who destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's a bureau that returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans. It cracked down on big financial institutions that were screwing you. He destroyed that. He rolled back the regulations on predatory payday lenders. In every way, this guy represents the billionaires, the wealthy and the people who are really the criminals in this system. And then he turns around and uses issues like this to make average Joes and Janes feel like he's a regular, schmegular guy like me and he's on my team with this stuff. See how much he hates trans athletes? I mean, it really is a pathetic thing to see. It really is a pathetic thing to see. It's a distraction so he can serve the establishment. And this, honestly, I can't even take credit for. Discussing this issue in the way I am because this is like the whole point of what's the matter with Kansas, Thomas Frank's book, which was one of my all time favorite books and one of the first ones I read um, about politics. Tales old as time. Kansas Republicans would bring up, you know, pro life issues and abortion and the whole time serving oligarchs and plutocrats. Their policies benefit the rich and screw workers, but they would dupe workers. By bringing up the social issues and making it so that, like, hey, you guys prioritize this stuff, right? And so they make it look like they're fighting for you in one arena, and then they totally screw you in the other arena. You know, so this is what this is. He has no real opinion on this. He's never thought about this for a second. You know, never thought about it for a second. It's like when he went to, um, what was it, Liberty University or some religious institution, and he was like, Four Corinthians walk into a bar, whatever the thing is that he said. He brought up um, a part of the Bible and just described it totally erroneously and absurdly. And it was clear that he had never thought about it or knew how to say it. Or He's just, he's not religious, but he would pretend to be religious just to get the votes. And, you know, Chomsky says that Chomsky says he's a superb con man. And it actually takes a high degree of skill to do what he did, which is as he's continuing to fleece these people, also get their, you know, complete and utter. 100% fawning support and adoration. So, but I will say this. If he uses this stuff moving forward, if he runs in 2024 and leans into culture war stuff, he's more likely to lose than win. Because the Trump that won in 2016 had to hit his stride on economic stuff. Now he was lying and he was full of shit and he wasn't a real populist, but the rhetoric was there where people thought, "Oh, he might fight for us on that stuff." And so that's why he won. If you just lean into the culture war stuff, that's not going to be enough anymore. It's not going to be enough anymore. Um, and if this is any indication of what he's going to do in 2024, then his 2024 campaign is more likely to be like the 2021, where he was sort of flailing and swinging and missing and couldn't really find the line of argument against Biden that, that served him the best. Um, if it wasn't for COVID, I think Trump probably would have won, but COVID did happen, and so he lost. And so at a time when we have a worldwide horrendous pandemic, over half a million people in America dead, you have a pandemic, you have effectively an economic depression, um, you still have the endless wars going on. And this is the stuff you're going to focus on. I see the trick he's trying to play, but I'm not so sure it'll work because it's too insular and in that Newsmax, One America News Network, Fox News bubble. It's just not enough. It's not enough of a strategy to bring about victory. So we'll see, but Trump leaning into the culture war is hilarious and dumb. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, we'll give you the CPAC straw poll, and then I have a lot of other stuff involving Biden and foreign policy. Stay right there.
4: all We are back up in this motherfucker. We
0: are back up in this motherfucker, y'all. All right, let's continue. I want to give you, we'll get off CPAC in a minute. I just want to give you the uh, final poll results.
3: want to give you the final poll results.
0: So every time um, CPAC happens, they do a straw poll to see who's the favorite for the upcoming Republican primary. And um, let's just say the results are conclusive. So Trump gets 55 percent. DeSantis. Governor of Florida gets 21%. Noam, one of the Dakotas, South Dakota or North Dakota, she's the governor there, did a terrible job with COVID, 4% for her. Nikki Haley, 3%. Pompeo, 2%. Cruz, 2%. Oh, what a beta cuck. And Rand Paul, 2%. Uh, By the way, they also did a version of the poll without Trump. And... Ron DeSantis crushed everybody when that was the case. Ron DeSantis got 43% without Trump. This is really, really interesting stuff here. So out of nowhere, Ron DeSantis is viewed as the heir apparent to the Trump throne. You know, I think I'm a little surprised. Like, did they not put Pence in the poll? I don't know. I don't see Pence here. And Pence, in every other poll I've seen, he's towards the top. Also, I don't see Trump Jr., and Trump Jr. has some respectable showings in a lot of these polls. So I don't really know exactly what's going on here, but Pence would have something to say about DeSantis being the heir apparent. And then you have people like Hawley who desperately wanted to be the heir apparent, but he just doesn't have a big enough uh, public profile yet. So I don't know, man, but the takeaway from this is it is still Trump's party through and through through and through. There were some people on Twitter making fun of Trump for quote only getting 55%, but only getting 55% seems like a little bit of a ridiculous view. And I, you know, I don't know the takeaway from this in terms of how it bodes for 2024 because the conventional wisdom now is Trump can win a primary but not a general. Maybe, maybe not. I really don't know. But what I will say is there will be a Republican civil war. It is just likely that Trump crushes in that civil war. And then we'll see what happens after that. You know, but the Liz Cheneys, the Adam Kinzinger, the Lincoln Project types. I mean, you could say there's just a home for them in the Democratic Party. There kind of is because the Democratic Party is just the moderate Republican Party. But um, I do think there will be an internal struggle in the Republican Party, and Trump is likely to crush in that internal fight, in that GOP civil war. And then it is possible that that leads to more perpetual losses for Republicans, or it's possible the Democrats massively under-deliver in these four years, and it actually does help the Republicans, and Trump does make a comeback of sorts. you know. But backing off the $15 minimum wage, backing off the $2,000 checks, these are really not things that are... Um, conducive to Democrats doing well in 2022 and 2024. But there you have it, Trump 55%. I mean, and if he goes away, it's DeSantis in this poll. But it would be interesting if Trump doesn't run again, and you have Pence versus DeSantis, and those are the two front runners in uh, in 2024. That'll be interesting to see. That'll be interesting to see. Because I don't... I haven't seen enough of DeSantis to know how his instincts are, but... Pence, even though he cuddled up to Trump, he does have more of the instincts of a standard establishment Republican, and he doesn't have the Trumpist instincts, which help Trump. Um, So DeSantis may have better instincts than Pence, but it would be interesting to see that, that battle. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. I mean, it's fucking 2021, and we're talking about 2024. Shoot me. Shoot me in the face. This is ridiculous. But there you have it. When it comes to CPAC... Not even CPAC. I think it was one of Trump's kids who said it's more like TPAC, Trump Political Action Conference. And that's totally true.
2: Ah! I dropped my LED light remote.
1: Wrong. Um, All
0: right, we're finally done with CPAC, y'all. Take a breath, relax. So Biden has been making some disastrous moves when it comes to foreign policy. Um, Recently, he released... The report that concluded that um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, is to blame for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. He released that report. Now, that's a good thing. It's a very good thing that he did that. But, but, he released it, and there are no plans to, like, sanction him, punish him, take any sort of retaliatory action. Even if it's just a tepid slap on the wrist, there's nothing. There's nothing on that front. So that's sort of pathetic that you're releasing the thing that says, yeah, he did it, but there's no actual action accompanying the release of the report. And in fact, it gets worse than that. Now, Aaron Maté made this point on Twitter. I think it's plausible. I don't know if it's true, okay, but his point was the airstrikes that Biden just did in Syria against Iranian-backed militias, Shia militias. That could have been sort of a mea culpa for MBS, saying to him, like, yeah, I released the report. I know you're pissed about it, but I'm still your boy, and we're still tight allies, and so I'm going to bomb the people who you want me to bomb. I'm bombing Shia militias. So in some ways, that could be like, I'm so sorry I released the report. Let me make it up to you, to MBS. I mean, if that's the case, that's the saddest thing I've ever seen. So CNBC says the following, White House defends decision not to punish Saudi crown prince, says U.S. does not sanction foreign leaders. Excuse you? The White House defended its decision not to target Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman after a U.S. intelligence report linked the royal to the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So what would be the correct response to this. I mean, there's a number of things that you could do. First and foremost, I'd kick Saudi Arabia out of the UN Human Rights Council. They don't deserve to be there. I mean, it's just, that's beyond obvious. Um, The other thing you do is immediately cut off all weapons sales to them, all of them. There's been some weird, again, more Weasley stuff from the Biden administration where they act like they might crack down in some ways, and then they have these gigantic loopholes where they're not cracking down at all. The recent one was, we're not going to help anymore with what's happening in Yemen. And then we learn after that, no, 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 they meant we're not going to help with any offensive strikes in Yemen. But they said, defensive, sure, we'll, we'll help with that, but then they could just define everything as defensive. So it's totally Weasley because Saudi Arabia is effectively carrying out a genocide in Yemen. You know, I know that's a strong word, but I'm using it on purpose. There's famine. There's a total embargo. They can't get food. They can't get medicine. I mean, it is really probably the number one catastrophe, on, uh, acute catastrophe on Earth right now. And we're actively facilitating and helping and aiding and still arming and backing Saudi Arabia. So you kick them off the Human Rights Council. That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is very, very targeted sanctions on the leader's of saudi arabia and you cut off all the weapon sales um i get it you get it you know there's this relationship that involves oil and the petrodollar and all this stuff but at some point your ethics and your morality has to override business as usual because there's no end to the depths of depravity and immorality that you can get to if you prioritize business as usual above everything else and that's exactly what we're seeing here. To release that report and then say, but also there's going to be no punishment. It's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. He's carrying out a genocide and he murdered a journalist. It's not an option to do nothing, but they're really doing nothing. Think of the precedent that that sets. Think of the precedent that that sets. So if you're our ally, you can get away with genocide, you can get away with mur- murdering journalists. I don't want to hear a goddamn word about how much the U.S. government cares in and believes in the First Amendment and a free press, and the Constitution, no. If you're going to have no reaction when one of our top allies kills a journalist, if you're going to actively aid and help facilitate a genocide, and just so we're clear, those airstrikes that happened in Syria, which may have been a payback to say, I'm sorry, Saudi Arabia, um, those airstrikes were illegal under international law and under U.S. law. And funny enough, like, these are the types of things that are so egregious that they actually might merit impeachment. And nobody's going to talk about impeachment on this, because the Republicans all all probably agree with it, too. They like it. They want to see more bombing happen. I mean, the Republican politicians, the voters do not want to see that. The politicians, they kind of want to see that. So every step recently that Biden has made on foreign policy has been atrocious and a disaster. And this is another example of it right here. All right, we talked a little bit about the bombing there. I got a, I got a little ahead of myself because I got another story here on exactly that. Oh, shit, let me change the, change the color behind me. I have an update for you on Biden's Syria bombing. At least 22 people were killed. After President Biden orders first military strike, the attack was carried out on Iranian backed militias. Now, they claim, they meaning the U.S. government and the Biden administration, they say, listen, this was, we're just getting them back for what they did to us because they were attacking us in Iraq, and so we had to do this. I have an idea. The best way to not get attacked in Iraq is to not be in Iraq. If you want to protect our troops and our people in Iraq, get out of there. None of our people can die if we're not there. So, I mean, I just find it obnoxious, this argument of like, it's ridiculous that we're getting attacked in the country that we've been illegally occupying for nearly two decades. Maybe it's a little bit of a problem that you're illegally occupying a country for almost two decades. Maybe that's a problem in and of itself. Maybe you're violating U S law and international law on that front and you need to pull out. And if you do pull out, you won't get attacked. And then you wouldn't do a retaliatory strike. So, I mean, that's the solution. Let's not kid ourselves. You can't say we were attacked and Oh my God, now we have to respond. Um, So beyond that, I already discussed this theory with you guys, but I'll float it again. Aaron Monte made this point that you had the r- release of the Saudi Arabia report that showed that MBS was responsible for the killing of Khashoggi. That pissed off Saudi Arabia. This move from the Biden administration might be a mea culpa, might be a sort of apology to say, hey, my bad on releasing that report. I'm still your boy. Here, I'll do what you want me to do, which is bomb Shia militias in Syria. So I think that that's a plausible theory. That might actually be what's going on in their mind, that, oh, we need to sort of pay them back because we released this report and made them look bad. Can't have that. So let's show them we're still boys with them. You know, Saudi Arabia is still ride or die. And, okay, we're going to kill a number of people in Shia militias on the ground in Syria. Completely and utterly illegal under U.S. law and international law. It's illegal under U.S. law because Congress needs to declare war. Congress did not declare war in Syria. They did not. So it's illegal. It's illegal under international law because this this actually isn't defensive in nature by any stretch of the imagination, and you're violating the sovereignty of Syria. These are the things. I need you to stop and think. If any other country acted around the world like we do, we would immediately call for regime change in that country because they have a rogue government that doesn't abide by international law, but when we do it, it's called a random Tuesday, you know, unacceptable, and 22 people killed, could easily be civilians, women and children, we don't know, we don't know, but to be this willy-nilly with airstrikes is unacceptable, and this is the same kind of stuff, like Trump increased drone strikes over 400%, Civilian deaths were also increased. He kept us in Iraq. He kept us us in Afghanistan. He escalated with Iran. What you have with Biden here is a continuation of the Trump policies. And I'm sorry, but I have no respect and no patience for anybody who is willing to overlook this stuff simply because it's Biden doing it. It's like the whole kids in cages thing. You go read the way this was talked about when Trump was president, and it was very clear. Kids in cages. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. You read about it under the Biden administration, and the same media outlets are saying stuff along the lines of a, a, a child, a temporary child detention facility. And they have pictures that show, like, balloons and, and paintings on the wall, and they try to spin it as, it's more, as if it's more positive now, as if it's, what are we going to do? We have to do this. We have no choice. So the way that they play with language, the way that they flip the standard is totally unacceptable. And this is one where everybody needs to line up against them. And, you know, I need to see more, more resistance from the Democratic base and elected representatives on stuff like this. You know, they're already pushing back on the minimum wage stuff. Good. But you got it like Ro Khan is out there talking about this, but very few people are really talking about this. It's almost like the bipartisan consensus is rampant imperialism. And that's unacceptable. That's not okay. That's not okay. And, you know, come to find out, oftentimes this has a lot to do with the fact that it's Republicans and Democrats who take money from the military-industrial complex. Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, I mean, you name it. And, I mean, Biden's – what's his name? I'm forgetting his name. Is it Lloyd Austin or something like that? Biden's Secretary of Defense – who just took over a million dollars from Raytheon. He was sitting on the board of Raytheon, and now he's the Secretary of Defense. Well, what the fuck do you think is going to happen? They're going to want to do strikes like this. They're going to want to be in- incredibly interventionist and imperialist in their foreign policy and neocon war hawks. That's what we're seeing here. So unacceptable, and I think everybody would agree it's unacceptable if it was Trump doing it. Now Biden's doing it, and a lot of people are going back to sleep. I have seen on, on Twitter, it was infuriating seeing how some people talk about this like, this is, this is what an adult airstrike looks like. I trust Biden's judgment, so I know that he's actually picking the right targets, and I can relax, and I have my weekends back now. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It can literally be the exact same policy as Trump, but when Biden does it, people will be like, eh, He's reasonable, so I guess it makes sense. No. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. These people were not some sort of direct imminent threat. If you're afraid of attacks against our people in Iraq, get the fuck out of Iraq. Why are we still there? Why are we still there? Shouldn't be there. Been there since 2003. Been in Afghanistan since 2001. We've allied with warlords who have child sex slaves, and then we have the nerve to turn around and say we're doing this stuff for morality or because we're the world police. No. Not true. Total bullshit. Total bullshit. This stuff has to stop, and it has to stop now. Okay. This one's a little bit of a surprise. There are Amazon workers in Alabama trying to start a union. Jeff Bezos is doing Jeff Bezos things to try to crush that effort. Well, shock, shock, Joe Biden comes out of nowhere and releases this video.
1: I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class, and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field they give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protection from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Union's lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. I made it clear, made it clear when I was running that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. I'm keeping that promise. You should all remember The National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers full stop, full stop. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic, the economic crisis, and the reckoning on race What it reveals the deep disparities that still exist in our country, and there should be no intimidation No coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor. No supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. God bless you all, and may God predict the workers and their families who are trying to figure out how to make it, make it fairly. Thank you.
0: That is really, really interesting. Um, keep it real, this is more than Obama did on the issue of unions his entire time in office. There were a number of prominent strikes that were happening when Obama was president, and he promised he would march with unions. He didn't. He didn't. And I, again, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he ever released any sort of statement like this. And Biden even referenced the exact Amazon union fight in Alabama going on right now. I am surprised. I am surprised. And it's a pleasant surprise. And, you know, I like it when he does good stuff, and I'm willing to give credit when he does good stuff. You have to be fair. You have to be objective about this stuff. Now, I will go one step further, though, and this is the part that I haven't heard um, many other people say. I I want the the rhetoric and the commentary to align with the policies. And so, you know, I feel like this would be a good opportunity to reintroduce some sort of pro-union legislation that would make it easier to join a union. So, For example, card check. You know, He could have voiced support for card check or talked about reintroducing it or maybe some other pro-union um, legislation that I'm unfamiliar with but that would materially improve the lives of workers, some attempt to crack down on the so-called right-to-work states when in reality those states are simply right-to-work for less. That's the thing about right-to-work states. The anti-union states is Fundamentally, the workers there make less. And so workers are getting screwed in those states. So I don't know, some attempt to crack down on that. Um, It would have been nice to have some policy accompanied with the commentary. But having said that, the commentary is a lot better than I've seen, certainly in modern American history. I don't know if you could find anything Bill Clinton said or Barack Obama said that was along these lines. I don't know. You probably have to go back to Jimmy Carter or Lyndon B. Johnson or something to get something that unequivocal when it comes to unions spoken by a president. So credit it's due, um, you know, and solidarity to those workers in, uh, in Alabama who are attempting to unionize at Amazon. I mean, listen, it's difficult for workers out there. It's, you know, one of the problems with the way the law currently is, is your employer can figure out who it is that's trying to unionize and they could like take retaliatory action against you, um, or at least that, that happens quite a bit. We need to come up with a way to make that not the case, to really protect workers' rights and protect the right to form a union. And again, I think card check is a, is a great policy on that front, but I'm sure there are others that I'm unfamiliar with. The bottom line is you need to make workers' lives easier. You need to make it easier for them to collectively bargain and you know when unions were their most powerful in this country, it also coincided with the golden age of economic expansion. We had the thriving middle class that was the envy of the world at a time when our unionization rates were the highest. There are some Scandinavian countries that don't even have a minimum wage because virtually the entire workforce is unionized, so they don't need a minimum wage. The wages that are negotiated by the union are above. What any minimum wage would be. So unions help working people. That's a fact. It's good to see this commentary. I would like to see some policy that also backs up this sentiment. Okay. I lied to you about CPAC. I'm going right back to CPAC, y'all. I'm going right back to CPAC. But it's not Trump, okay? It's other commentators at CPAC. Apparently, I can't stop talking about CPAC. I caught up on it the other day and uh, saw some of the speeches. Not Trump's. Or we already covered Trump's, but some of the other speeches. There are some interesting moments that I want to point out. Here's Josh Hawley.
5: You know that we are facing a crisis in our country. This is one of the great moments of crisis in American history. We're facing a fight for the republic itself, and we are facing an unprecedented alliance of radical liberals and the biggest, most powerful corporations in the history of the world. They are standing together. You know who I mean. People like Google, Facebook, if you heard of them, Twitter. These companies have more power than any companies in American history, and they're aligned with the radical left to try to impose their agenda on this country. They want to run this country, and if we don't do something, they are going to. And we've got a word for that. It's called oligarchy. And that's what we're facing in America right now, and we've got a basic choice. We can have a republic where the people rule, or we can have an oligarchy where big tech and the liberals rule, and that is the choice, that is the challenge that we face today. It's a perilous moment.
0: You know, Josh Hawley loves to do the fake populism, where he talks about the oligarchy and the people and fighting back against the moneyed interests. But take note of his examples right there. He says, he basically just says, big tech. It's Google, Facebook, and Twitter. They have, quote, more power than any companies in American history. In American history. Huh. You know who he didn't bring up? He didn't bring up the banks. He didn't bring up Wall Street. He didn't bring up the military-industrial complex. He didn't bring up Amazon. He didn't bring up a number of other companies that you can make a the same claim about more power than any companies in american history so he talks about oligarchy but it's limited specifically to big tech that's like the definition of fake populism i'm sorry son that's what that is that is fake populism for sure because yes you need to call out if you're going to talk about the oligarchy you need to talk about wall street you need to talk about goldman sachs and the big banks and Raytheon, and Boeing, and Honeywell, and the military-industrial complex, and billionaires. Listen, I watched his whole speech. He never says Wall Street. He never says military-industrial complex. He never says billionaires. So he fancies himself a populist, but it's limited in scope to just big tech. Now, listen, I'm no fan of big tech, but I don't even know if I agree with his solutions on the big tech front. My solution, when it comes to the issue of censorship and things of that nature... I think we should um, basically declare these big social media outlets public utilities and then regulate them like public utilities, which means you can expand free speech protections onto these platforms. So the First Amendment would apply to these platforms because they'd be viewed as the new public square. That's my solution. His solution is break them up. Now, listen, I'm open to hearing conversations about why maybe that's preferable to my idea of treating them as public utilities. But as of right now, I'm not convinced that breaking them up is better than regulating them strictly and treating them like public utilities and expanding First Amendment protection. So I don't even know if I agree with him on his solution to this problem, but it's noteworthy that this is what he views as the main problem. You know, um, and, and listen, that's, that's Josh Hawley for you. Now, he's been right from time to time. He was right on the $2,000 checks and some other things, but ultimately he has supported a bunch of outsourcing deals. That's something people don't really know. He opposed, he, before, I don't know what his position is now, but before he opposed Uh, A minimum wage increase. Um, He supported right-to-work legislation, which is anti-union legislation, which just means right-to-work for less. So yeah, forgive me if I think this populism is fake, because the record shows indeed it is kind of fake. And I just want you to realize, it is noteworthy that when he talks about the oligarchy, there's nothing on Wall Street or the military-industrial complex or billionaires. It's only big tech. That's like classic... Pseudo populism nonsense, and it's pretty transparent if you're willing to pay attention. Okay. Man, I am absolutely cruising through this. I have more stories today than I normally do, and I am cruising through this show. It's kind of amazing. All right, let me do one more here with Ted Cruz, and then I'll take a break. And I'm going to try to make it so that the second I get off air, I have delicious food delivered because I am starving. I didn't have the opportunity to eat breakfast today, which is a damn shame. Okay, let, let me set this up for you. Now we got Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz has just plummeted in popularity, even among the Republican base. Um, I'm sure there's a number of reasons for that, but the most recent thing was the trip to Cancun right in the middle of a giant crisis in Texas with the winter storm and the power going out everywhere. Um, that's one thing, but overall he's just weasley and annoying and obnoxious and nasally and he's just insufferable. So apparently even the Republican base is catching on to that fact. I want to show you some of his CPAC speech, and then we'll break it down.
2: You know, last week we lost the great Rush Limbaugh. Uh I was so blessed and so fortunate to call Rush a friend and Rush understood the power of liberty. You know before there was Hannity, before there was Tucker, before there was Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder, before there was Donald Trump there was Rush Limbaugh. before there was Section 230, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine, which gave leftists in Washington the power to silence views they didn't like. We got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, and Rush Limbaugh started by going on one a.m. station, and then a second a.m. station, and then a third, and then a fourth, and then a fifth, and the voice of liberty spread like prairie fire. And let me tell you right now, In Los Angeles, there's some skater kid who's 19 who's told that it's hip and chic and cool to be a leftist socialist man who's going to hear a message, wait a second, these guys don't want me to speak, think, have fun, do what I want to do. The message of liberty is profoundly subversive. the Republican Party is not the party just of the country clubs, the Republican Party is the party of steel workers, and construction workers, and pipeline workers, and taxi cab drivers, and cops, and firefighters, and waiters, and waitresses, and the men and women with calluses on their heads who are working for this country. That is our party, and these deplorables are here to stay.
0: He's so full of shit. He's so full of shit. Who, me, bro? And the Republicans, bro? We're the party of the working people, bro. That's what it is. Really? Tell me why it is that they just voted on the $15 minimum wage in the House of Representatives. All but two Democrats voted for a $15 minimum wage. You know how many Republicans voted for it? Zero. Zero Republicans voted for a $15 minimum wage. And he just said, the GOP is the party of steel workers and construction workers and pipeline workers and taxi cab drivers and cops and waiters
4: and waitresses, bro. Waiters and
2: waitresses,
0: bro. He cares so deeply about waiters and waitresses that he wants them to continue to make starvation wages. Even in the Senate, you have some Republicans who are nominally for some kind of increase in the minimum wage. They just released the bill, Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney. They want the minimum wage to be $10 an hour. So understand this. They want to raise the minimum wage from not a living wage to still not a living wage. That's what Tom Cotton wants to do. That's what Mitt Romney wants to do. That's what a handful of the other Republicans want to do. If any of them are even in favor of raising the minimum wage, because a lot of them, the majority of them, are not in favor of raising the minimum wage. And, by the way, that's a giant fuck you to your own base because a majority of Republicans in the base want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. In fact, the bill that had the $15 minimum wage in it, it pulled 60% among Republican voters, and zero Republican politicians voted for it. So, I, I mean, I can't stand... The fake populism pisses me off more than anything because, at least in the past, they would basically wave the flag of, I'm an elitist, and I'm for the establishment. Now, they pretend like they're for the people and they're populist, but they're not. All their policies spit in their face. Ted Cruz argued when Democrats proposed this idea of getting rid of money in politics or strictly limiting money in politics, Ted Cruz came out there and said, these people hate free speech, and they're against the First Amendment. He was arguing for unlimited billionaire and corporate money in politics. And now he has the nerve to turn around and say, I'm fighting for the little guy, bro. I'm for steel workers and construction workers and pipeline workers and taxi cab drivers and cops and waiters and waitresses. This guy is anti-union, anti-minimum wage, total free market Kool-Aid drinking clown, you know, and he's not for policies that help workers. There's so many other parts of this that I find interesting too. See, he's trying to do the whole like, we're the edgy ones, bro. And so he says, the message of liberty is profoundly subversive. I like his, his point of somewhere there's a kid in Los Angeles, a skater kid. And he's been told it's cool to be a leftist, bro. And then here's how he describes what leftists are like. They don't want me to speak. They don't want me to think. They don't want me to have fun. They don't want me to do what I want to do. That's your, that's your description of people who disagree with you politically, is that they don't want you to speak, they don't want you to think, they don't want you to have fun, and they don't want you to do whatever you want to do. I mean, he's not having an honest conversation. He's just straw manning his opponents. If you really want to get literal about this, who really is against you doing what you want to do? Because leftists, if they're in favor of democratizing the workplace, they don't even want you to have a boss that can bark orders at you. Ted Cruz, Want you to have a boss who's basically your dictator and your tyrant and whatever they say you have to do. But he pretends like he's in favor of liberty? What a joke. He brings up Rush Limbaugh's. Rush was the biggest proponent of liberty. Rush Limbaugh was in favor of locking up drug users and people who sell drugs. He's a drug warrior. At the same time, he was popping so many Oxycontin that he went deaf from it. I'm not kidding about that. He was doing drugs like nobody's business. And at the same time, he's on air advocating that if you do drugs, we should lock you up and throw away the key. And you're going to talk about Rush cares about liberty? Define liberty, bitch. How so does he care about liberty? He supports liberty in the same way that Ted Cruz supports liberty, which is he supports what they think is the right of business owners to control the lives of their workers. That's the kind of liberty that he supports. A, a, A tyrannical, dictatorial, capitalist version of liberty. And by the way, I don't know. I actually don't know. Is Ted Cruz a drug warrior? He certainly was in the past, right? Is he still a drug warrior? So they don't actually support, like they use the word freedom and liberty and they don't actually think of the practical implications of what it would actually mean to believe in freedom and liberty. And it's just, it's so telling the, um, the way he spoke about Rush there because, and, Ted Cruz was not the only one at CPAC to do this, but there's this real sense that Rush Limbaugh is the godfather of the modern Republican movement. And I think that's such a damning admission. They don't even realize how pathetic they look when they say that stuff. Because, you know, Rush Limbaugh's politics, it's movement conservatism is the least sexy, least subversive, least outsider movement of all time. The whole point of it, is to cut taxes for the wealthy and cut taxes for corporations and give billionaires whatever they want and deregulate so that they can screw working people and keep wages for working people low and do endless wars. This is what Rush Limbaugh was in favor of. The biggest the biggest establishment ball tickler of all time. Of all time and Ted Cruz was like, Yeah, that was our he was our guiding star. He was our guiding star. He's the person that, you know, Set the table for Hannity. Imagine acting like Hannity's should be listened to about anything. Hannity, Tucker, Ben Shapiro, Steven Crowder. Look at that world that he's in. He's so drunk on partisan brainworm Republican politics that he can't see straight. He's bringing up charlatans and frauds and con men as if they're like, you know, these are real intellectuals and philosophers who are leading the way. So it's just, it's pathetic. The fake populism is insufferable, not even for a living wage, not even for pro-union legislation. You know, he himself is in favor of the endless wars. It's a joke. It's a joke. He's a clown. And by the way, now he's at 2% in the polls, in the CPAC straw poll. He was number two in 2016 running against Trump. Now he's at 2%. So apparently the smarmy, I'm Ted Cruz. don't you like me me the smarminess and the weaseliness has just engulfed even the republican base where they listen to this guy talk and they're like "Eh." he's one of those guys that the second he starts talking you're like hey do me a favor shut the fuck up just just shut the fuck up please i I don't want to hear it i don't hear anything you have to say you're annoying as fuck shut the fuck up i would greatly appreciate it if you shut the fuck up he's one of those people and even the republican base is getting it now that like he's just Unbearable. He's unbearable in every sense of the word, and um, this was just some choice snippets from his CPAC speech proving that point. Okay. All right, final break, y'all. When we come back, I'm going to go to Trump Jr., then Ben Shapiro, and then Dave Rubin. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. I am back, bitch. All right, here we go. Um, Trump Jr., this will actually be the last one from CPAC.
2: This will be the last one.
0: Trump Jr. gave a speech at CPAC, obviously before his dad. His dad was the main event. Um, He's actually been showing up in a lot of these polls as a top contender in the next Republican primary for president. I know it's incredibly depressing. Um, The best part of Trump Jr. is his uh, constant cocaine use. It appears like he's on cocaine 24-7, and I respect the shit out of that. Um, So here he is, though, in his speech. This moment stuck out to me. Let's watch, and then we'll talk about it. this mythology that has been building around Trump as as if he's some sort of non-interventionist my dude we never left iraq we never left afghanistan i mean he scheduled it so that by may 1st we'd be out but out is still keeping a couple thousand troops there which is not out he kept us in iraq he kept us in afghanistan He increased drone strikes over 400%. His very first raid as president killed an eight-year-old American girl. The idea he's a non-interventionist is beyond absurd. Look at how he escalated with Iran. He ripped up the nuclear agreement when they were abiding by it, according to every international source. The IAEA went in there, they were looking at it, they were regulating, and they said, yeah, they're following the the agreement to a T we ripped up the deal. We sanctioned them. They can't get a lot of the medicine that they need in that country. So the civilians are being hurt. We did an offensive and illegal strike on general Suleimani, who, by the way, on the ground, was on the front line fighting ISIS. He was one of the top anti-ISIS fighters in the region in no way, shape or form. Can you call this guy a non-interventionist? He brings up, he says, um, The military-industrial complex is back in charge with Biden. The military-industrial complex was in charge with your dad, too. He picked John Bolton to be one of his top foreign policy advisors and then listened to John Bolton all the time. And John Bolton is one of the biggest neocon war hawks in the country. I mean, sure, he was slightly less hawkish than John Bolton, but that's, that's like hiring fucking Charles Manson and then being like, well, I like murder slightly less than this guy. I mean, that's really what it's like. What a what a ridiculous way of talking about this issue. It, and it's not just him, by the way. It's not like he was a one-off. Like oh, he brought in John Bolton, but at least everybody else he had around him was not a neocon. Mike Pompeo is a tried and true, committed deep neocon. Gina Haspel, this is somebody who was a torturer under the Bush administration, and you brought him in to be, I think, to be a head of the CIA. I mean, it, it is fascinating to watch how you can have this complete and utter mythology be built around Trump as if he's like non-interventionist when his whole record is a continuation of the establishment and the status quo. He didn't end the wars. He increased the wars. I'm sorry. That's the reality. Now, it makes sense to go after Biden for doing you know, more bombing because he's doing the same thing Trump did. He's continuing the wars and he's escalating the wars. So yeah, go after Biden for that. But you guys have to take responsibility for the fact that You weren't anti-war at all, at all. Now, he brings up Liz Cheney because Liz Cheney spoke out against uh, Trump with the attempted insurrection and I think supported impeachment. And so there's this war going on now, this GOP civil war, and he's trying to go after her. But it's funny because he brings up foreign policy because she's a notorious war hawk and, and neocon maniac. But it's like he brings that up as if really has deep disagreements with Cheney on that front. He doesn't. He really doesn't. Maybe minor disagreements on that front, but overall, they're both hawkish and they're both imperialists, and there's no doubt about it. And I haven't even brought up, like, the stuff that we've been doing to Venezuela, the sanctions on Venezuela, the attempted coup in Venezuela that we may or may not have something to do with, probably did have something to do with. Not at all is he a non-interventionist, and if you believe that, you're a sucker. So I don't know if Trump Jr. is lying or if he himself is a sucker and bought into the mythology, but this mythology needs to die now. If he really was anti-war, he would have gotten us out of Iraq. He would have gotten us out of Afghanistan. He would have reduced the drone war or stopped with the drone war. He wouldn't have escalated more with Iran. He wouldn't have assassinated General Suraimani. The list goes on and on. Don't believe the hype. He's full of shit. Okay. Now we move on to Ben Shapiro, Squeaky Benjamin. Squeaky Benjamin is uh, focusing on all of the crucial, vital, important issues. Um, Since we're in the middle of a pandemic with over half a million Americans dead, we're functionally in the middle of a depression or at the very least an extreme recession. I read a fact uh, the other day that um, about a year ago, there was a moment where over 50% of the American people didn't have a job. Like, the actual unemployment rate was over 50%. So Ben is going to laser in on these issues and talk about the, the really important stuff. Let's see what he had to say.
6: People have asked me about this all the time. Do you use transgender pronouns? Do you use oh. what they call preferred pronouns? Which is not preferred, right? It's re- it's, I require you to use it. It's Mandatory pronouns. And right? is it because they're not preferred, right? You don't make the preference, and that you require somebody else to use it, right? I have a preference to do X. I, if I have a preference that you do X, that is a mandate, that, that, that is now a requirement upon you. And okay? that, that is the lie about the term preferred pronoun. It's not that I prefer that you use this pronoun. It's if you don't use this pronoun, you're a discriminatory, tool bad. It's a requirement that I do something. It, 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 all of this is euphemistic garbage. In any case, the basic idea here. People have asked about using these sorts of pronouns, and here's what I've said. If I'm at dinner with a transgender person, I'll call them whatever they want. I don't care, because that's just being polite. But when I said this is my basic rule, when I discuss people in general, you know, when I'm speaking about them on a broad level, when I'm speaking about politics, I refuse to use pronouns that do not apply to the biological sex. I will not do that, because words have meaning. I'm not just going to not use words that have meaning on the basis that somebody's feelings might be hurt. Because guess what? That is public policy, and that is politics, and that is reality. Sometimes the facts
0: don't jive with your feelings. He's so smug. It's amazing. The facts don't jive with your feelings sometimes. Talk to me about climate change. What are your thoughts on climate change? Tell me how oh-so-pro-science you are when talking about that issue. Tell me about, um, tell me about Reaganomics, trickle-down economics. Got anything to say about that? Because, you know, I know what they say, all these guys, about how do no. – it's great for the economy and it doesn't lead to boom-bust cycles and it doesn't increase the deficit and debt massively. I don't know what you're talking about. Talk to me about that. Sometimes the facts don't jive with your feelings. You have plenty of beliefs, Ben, that are your feelings over the fact. I mean, that's beyond obvious for anybody who's familiar with, you know, the range of your opinions. But anyway, I digress from that. He says in this clip, Like, okay, I will use the pronouns that you want, if you're a trans person, in private. We'll go have dinner. We'll, you know, talk it out. And if you were biologically male, born biologically male, but you become a trans woman and you want me to call you she, I will call you she. That's what he's saying. Okay, cool. But then he says, but I'm not going to use the the proper pronouns uh, publicly, excuse me. So I'll say it in private, but I won't say it in public. I just, I don't get, that doesn't make sense to me. Why? If you're if you're admitting that for private lives, you'll call people whatever they want to be called, well, then why wouldn't you also just do that publicly? It seems like a, a weird place to draw a line. You know what I mean? Like, there are other people who would say, no, I don't respect it, and I won't even say what you want me to say Privately. But Ben is almost conceding the argument up front. that, like, yeah, I'll call you whatever you want to be called. But then he says, but publicly I won't, but privately I will. It's almost like that makes such little sense that it's even more respectable for the out-and-out transphobe who's like, no, I'm not going to do it privately and I'm not going to do it publicly because that's what I believe. Like, there's, there's no consistency. you know. So obviously what my perspective is, is I'll say, you know, if you're a trans person and you want me to use whatever pronoun privately, I'll use it privately and I'll use it publicly because there's, I don't care. Who cares? It's not, like, imagine thinking about this issue and this issue, like, keeps you up at night and this issue drives you crazy. They're wanting me to use she and I'm not comfortable with that. Imagine, it's it's some real beta shit, you know, and it does, I'm sorry, but it does smell like not being comfortable in your own skin. If you're, if you're taken aback by how other people act on these issues and feel about these issues and what they want, you know, if somebody's really comfortable in their own skin, yeah, of course, I'll, I don't care. I'll say whatever the fuck. It doesn't matter. It's not that serious, especially if it makes you, them feel so much better and it's not even a tiny setback for me. Who gives a fuck? Who cares? But he draws this weird line of, I'll say it in private, but I won't say it publicly. Well, you're living a contradiction right there. If, if it's something that you know in private makes them happy and it makes no difference to you, why wouldn't you also do it publicly? Why wouldn't you? There's no reason not to do it, unless you're just like trying to be a douche, which probably is the reason. He is probably just trying to be a douche. So he does the whole facts don't care about your feelings thing while taking a contradictory position. I'll say this in private, I won't, I'll, I'll say this publicly. Again, at least say what you want about the out-and-out out transphobe. At least they're consistent. <laughs> at least they're consistent. But, um, I almost called him Biden. Uh, ben Shapiro is uh, not at all consistent. You know, What you're doing privately is what you should do publicly. And um, that would make a lot more sense to me. The position that he's espousing here honestly makes the least amount of sense to me. It makes the least amount of sense. Because, again, even from the perspective of just a hardcore transphobe, it's like you see why they're doing what they're doing. I don't agree with it, but I see their reasoning. With Ben, it's like you don't even – I don't even see your reasoning to why you do it privately but not publicly. That makes no sense. Like pick one and stick with it. Okay. Okay, final story of the day and y'all are gonna love this one. I'm starting to feel a little bit bad for Dave Rubin because he keeps making the show. You know, I don't, it's not like I'm looking for Dave Rubin stuff to talk about. It just keeps popping up on my radar, and I'm like, I want to talk about this. I got to kind of talk about this. And I throw it in the show. I mean, what am I supposed to do? So, um, sorry, Dave. You've been my punching bag for quite a while now. But uh, it's not me. It's you, son. So, uh, he spoke, I guess this is recently. This is from the great um, Twitter account, Dave Rubin Clips. He, uh, it's like a parody of Dave Rubin, of course. But they play his own words, which is parody enough. So he's talking here about the issue of gay marriage and tolerance. And what he says I actually find kind of sad, and I wanted to share it with you.
6: So does it bother me? Like, would I, would I ultimately hope that they would come to my line of thinking on this? Sure, but do I expect to sit down with a bishop and, and have it rip off the frock and go, like, yay, I'm, I'm for gay marriage. Like, no, I don't. But I think there's other ways you can build bridges. Um, and it's sort of funny because, you know, when I have some of those people on, I get all the lefties uh, tweeting at me saying that I'm, I'm self-hating and these people hate me and all that. And it's like, well, not only do I not get hate from those guys, I get tolerance, but I'm not self-hating. And it's like, for the, I thought you guys are the tolerant ones, but you're telling me he's a bigot and I'm self-hating as we're talking about tolerance, right? And we're talking about agreeing to disagree, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, this clip... Is, it really is just sad because he's talking about the issue of gay marriage. You know, he's asked like, Hey, does it bother you when people who are like your kind of political allies are not in favor of you having the right to get married? And his answer is basically like, no, that doesn't bother me. And he's contesting the notion that that makes him a self hater. But I mean, I really want you to stop and think about this in other contexts to see how beyond the pale it is. That's like you have, a black guy who's married to a white woman or a black woman who's married to a white man or whatever, and um, they have friends who are against interracial marriage, and they're willing to sit down and talk about it, but they don't budge. And they're like, yeah, I know you're interracially married, but I don't believe in it. I think it's sinful. I think it's wrong. I think it shouldn't be done. Um, and yeah, that's how I feel about it. Now, in that context, when somebody says, hey, is that really your friend? Like, really? you want to – this is your person right here? This is, your, this is your buddy? When they literally think your very being and your existence and the thing that makes you you, a, a colossal part of what makes you you, they're totally judging it and they disagree with it and they look down their nose at you and they're super condescending about it and they have a backwards, primitive, bigoted ideology, an intolerant ideology. In that context, I think everybody sort of understands, like, yeah, that's kind of, like, that really is sort of beyond the pale, isn't it? This idea of, I don't even think black and white people should get married. For whatever reason, when it comes to gay marriage, I guess it's still new enough and fresh enough where people don't view it as that absurd. When you have somebody who, like, Dave's friends with people who are like, I don't think you should be able to get married, buddy. I don't think you should have equal rights. I mean... Okay, if he wants to stay friends with them, but call it what it is. They are not being tolerant. They are being intolerant. They're being intolerant. That's what that is. And it's also a bigoted position. It, it, it is. It's a homophobic position. It is what it is. I mean, I, you know, I want to be kind, and I want to find a way to talk about it that makes sense, but really the definition fits. So what am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm going to say what it is, and that's what it is. It's intolerant. It's bigoted. It's homophobic. They don't believe in equal rights for gay people. That's not just like a, oh, agree to disagree type thing. That's not an agree to disagree type thing. That's a, they're striking at the core of your being and what it means to be you. And so he's sort of bending over backwards to try to make it okay and pretend like they're the tolerant ones. Like, no, sorry, they're not the tolerant ones. They're intolerant if they're not for you having the right to get married. And the lefties who are sort of pointing at you and laughing, I mean, they have a point. They have a point. He's so willing to be a tool of the right and a conservative propagandist, and at this point a Republican and Trumpist propagandist. He's so willing to do it that he will sit there with a smile on his face as people he's talking to believe he shouldn't even have equal rights and he should be relegated to second-class citizenship. I just find that sad. I find that sad. You know, listen, I'm a big... I'm I'm somebody who believes in dialogue. I believe in trying to convert people to your way of thinking. Um, I don't draw hard lines on stuff like this and say, my way or the highway. But this is one of those issues where if you're not calling it what it is, intolerant, bigoted, homophobic, I mean, you're really cucking yourself in the saddest of ways. And it probably has a lot to do with money. Finances, and uh, so he'll sit there and yuck it up with people who literally think he should be a second-class citizen and shouldn't have equal rights. Sorry, Dave, there are some views that truly are beyond the pale. Like if somebody's casually pro-genocide, you know, can you sit there and be like, "Well, I'm I'm going to be tolerant of their view that genocide is is okay"? I mean, hey, we could just agree to disagree on this, right? No, I, I have a feeling there are some things where he would draw a line. But gay marriage is not one of them, and yeah, I mean, so how am I supposed to take away from that that you're not a self-hater? When you think it's a valid opinion, when somebody thinks, I think you should be a second-class citizen and shouldn't have equal rights. It's just sad, man, it's just sad. Conservative, propagandist, tool of the right, and never willing to stand up for himself and and assert himself, even when it strikes at the core of his being and, and who he is. And I do genuinely find that just sad. And I think that when you think about this, topic, from the perspective of, imagine it was interracial marriage, I think everybody sort of gets it, like, oh, yeah, that's uh, that's really gross and beyond the pale, and you shouldn't, I mean, those people really are bigoted and need to adjust their worldview, uh, you know, uh, people deserve second chances and time to evolve, and then when they evolve, good, it's all good, but if you're still telling, if you're telling your black friend, I don't think you should have the right to marry a white woman, and I don't agree with your marriage, I think it's sinful, I'm going to call you racist. I'm, I have no choice. Like that's, that's bigoted, for sure, absolutely. So it's bigoted and it's homophobic when it's against gay people. But he's not. he doesn't want to accept that reality. And he doesn't want to understand the consequences of that belief and that approach. And it's just sad. All right, guys, I'm done, baby. I love y'all. I will talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.